Hello, this is Brad Redderson, and welcome to Spernova's Interview Series, an audio program exploring the intersection between cutting-edge business strategies and the innovations that can ignite business growth. It's one of several podcast series on the subject of strategic innovation in business offered by Stranova, a resource group dedicated to helping you achieve and capitalize on the incredible potential available for your own business. With our over 30 years of experience leading innovation, we know what it takes to turn ideas into profits. Please visit us to learn more at www.stranova.com. And now, please join us for this week's episode of Stranova's Interview Series. It is funny how times have changed. When I was growing up, we worried about not if, but when, somebody with sufficient geopolitical power and insufficient morals or logic would do something stupid and cause nuclear holocaust to rain down all over the world, covering many of the world's population centers with radioactive fallout and causing a vast nuclear winter to fill our skies. That, of course, didn't happen. And we hope won't happen, because we've grown smarter than that. As I grew older, the vast world scare concept evolved quite a bit, to one where pollution would poison our groundwater, move into our food supply, fill the air with dense smog, and slowly kill the lot of us. To some extent, that fear has come to pass, but we do seem to have the ability to take some of these things seriously and even engage global action on the issues involved. As an example, the Los Angeles Basin, near where I attended college, and where pollution used to be so horribly bad, it always had some of the most beautiful sunsets in the country, with the light of the setting sun scattered in the dust and dirt suspended in the air. And it had air that was difficult to breathe, even if there wasn't anything wrong with your lungs. And now, over 30 years later, after tight smog controls and the natural healing capacity of the planet, while things aren't necessarily where we want them to be, I would argue that it is a much healthier place to live, work, run, and just walk. The skies are actually blue again, where when I was in college, it had to rain to cleanse the air enough to see through the haze. Now, however, the vast scare focuses on such things as widespread global warming and the accelerating impact our slightest ecological mistake in managing our lives and businesses has on this world we call home. The air temperature is rising, the ice under Greenland is melting, and the ocean currents across the Atlantic already do seem to be slowing, which in turn will leave the United Kingdom and Europe with less warmth from the Gulf Stream, and paradoxically cause their temperatures to drop noticeably, perhaps as much as several degrees centigrade on average over the next 10 years. Species with the least capability to migrate will die out, and ecosystems will be sent into turmoil as a result. What can we do about these latest threats? Well, a key part of it is to stop thinking about nature in our business world as separable systems that, although they may have some interdependence, especially for those businesses more tightly linked to the natural world, such as the petroleum industry and agriculture, really can operate separately and with different rules. The reality is they never were separate, but we've been coasting for so many years on the idea that environmental reserves of all kinds, whether they be of clean water, clean air, specific species that are beginning to die out, or even oil in the ground, were cheap and so readily available that we could afford to be, well, pretty wasteful. Maybe in a thousand years or so it might matter, but 
hey, we have a business to run, right? Well, the times have changed, and the future we previously ignored is staring us right in the face. And warnings alone aren't what we need. We need action, and even so, an action that is positively focused, rather than reactive to the fears of what might happen if we don't act. To help us with some ideas about how we might make such a turn, we have the pleasure and honor to have as our guest this week Hunter Lovins, the founder and president of Natural Capitalism, Inc., an organization created in 2003 to assist organizations in becoming more efficient and competitive in their missions, while assisting them with the objective of becoming more integrated with the natural universe they operate within. Ms. Lovins holds a JD and several honorary doctorates, and has extensive experience working with business leaders all over the world in the area of sustainable business and community development. She has lectured throughout the world, has consulted for industries and governments worldwide, and with multinational giants such as Shell Oil. She has also launched several of her own businesses, including eSource, which eventually sold for $18 million. She shared a 1982 Mitchell Prize, a 1983 Right Livelihood Award, sometimes referred to as the Alternative Nobel Prize, the 1993 Nissan Prize, and the 1999 Lindbergh Award. In 2000, she was named Time Magazine's Hero of the Planet, and in 2001 received the Shingo Prize for Manufacturing Research and the Leadership in Business Award. We spoke with Ms. Lovins outside the Fort Mason facility in San Francisco in December of 2006. Well, Hunter, welcome to Stranova. Thank you. Excellent to be here. Well, a good starting place would be to ask just the basic question, what is natural capitalism and why is it so important to all of us? Natural capitalism is a way of doing business that is more profitable than business is done now and that also happens to solve many of the problems facing humankind like peak oil, loss of most of the ecosystems on the planet, climate change, etc. So obviously us that have been in traditional business are a little bit off target in what we've been doing here. I'm curious about your own perspective of that. What is it that's it's off target in our perspective and the way we tend to look at things? Business as we know it grew out of the first industrial revolution when we invented commerce in its modern form, invented capitalism. There's nothing wrong with capitalism per se. It's the greatest known system in the history of the planet for the creation of wealth. But it is based on the theory that you accumulate and productively use capital. So far, so good. In the first industrial revolution, we had relatively few skilled people to run the new machines that were coming into practice. We had apparently lots of abundant free nature. So profit-maximizing capitalists economized on their scarce resource, skilled people, and sought to increase labor productivity as a way to increase well-being, and succeeded enormously. We took people who had previously been doing hand tasks and enabled them, through the use of machinery, to become 100 times, 200 times as productive. We substituted cheap energy, cheap resources, and built the modern society that we have now. We now live at a time in which we get 10,000 more people on Earth every hour and every major ecosystem on the planet is in decline. We're not short of people anymore and we are very short of, if you will, intact ecosystems, the capacity of the planet to sustain life. In 2005, the UN Millennium Ecosystem Assessment, work of 1,300 or so scientists from 95 countries around the world, concluded that humans have 
polluted or overexploited two-thirds of the ecosystems on which life depends to the point that the ability of these ecosystems to sustain future generations can no longer be taken for granted. Kofi Annan said the very basis for life on Earth is declining at an alarming rate. So, if you will, what's wrong with the way we're doing business now is not the underlying theory of capital, productive use and accumulation of capital. It is that the relative scarcities have changed and our mental model hasn't yet. So we're still seeking to increase labor productivity as if the goal of our economy is one person doing all the work, the rest of us out of work, and we are still subsidizing the use of resources. For example, in energy around the world every year we spend about $240 billion trying to make the use of energy look cheaper than it really is to the economy. And this is just daft. What's wrong is not the basic underlying approach of capitalism, the, the accumulation of productive use of capital. It's that the relative scarcities have shifted. So we continue to subsidize the use of resources, for example, in energy around the world every year we spend something like $240 billion making the use of energy look cheaper than it really is. This is your and my tax dollars. Mm -hmm. And we continue to try to increase labor productivity as if the goal were one person in the economy doing all the work and the rest of us out of work. Corporate stock goes up when you have layoffs, when you yes. have restructuring. What we ought to be seeking to do is to, if you will, fire the unproductive use of resources to enable us to more productively use the people that are now on the planet. We also are not fully counting all forms of capital. The theory of globalization is that all of us will be better off if we increase the velocity of trade in financial and manufactured capital. And indeed, when you increase velocity in this. To some extent, people are better off. But this is not counting at least two other forms of capital that are critical to the health of the economy. And those are human capital, intact cultures, mm -hmm. and natural capital, intact ecosystems. In the case of natural capital, the intact ecosystems give to our economy something like $30 trillion a year of worth. This is roughly the size of the entire economy that we count, but none of this is on anybody's balance sheet. So we treat these services as if they have no value. The services include things like biological productivity, the stable climate that, for instance, agriculture and much of the insurance industry depends on, the purification of air, the cycling of water the ability of estuaries to produce new fish so that our fisheries can go and overfish them. Mm -hmm. And if you degrade the ecosystems on which these services depend, you lose the services. Now the economists say, well, okay, if we're not properly counting an ecosystem service, put a price tag on it, we can add it to the equation. Cool, how do you do that? Arguably some of these services have an infinite value. For example, the guys at Biosphere 2 spent $200 million, couldn't keep eight people in clean air for two years. What's the worth of clean air? Arguably, we're all a mite sentimental about it, and its, its loss would be felt. We don't have a price tag we can stick on it, and we don't know how to replace it. A stable climate is another one. This is of late coming to be of concern to the insurance industry. So Swiss Re, the big European reinsurer, has recently said to its major customers, if your company doesn't take its carbon footprint seriously, 
maybe our company doesn't want to insure you or your officers and directors. Now imagine the economy doing business without directors and, and officers, D&O you know, insurance. You know, most companies say, whoa, we quit. <laughs> These are very real contributions to the economy, but because they aren't on anybody's balance sheet, we're kidding ourselves, we're cheating ourselves in the way in which we're doing business. Now, a number of people, people like Herman Daly, various of the European organizations, the EU, the World Bank, are trying to figure out how to do honest accounting of all contributions to the economy, but until they figure it out, we need a way in which business can behave as if it is properly valuing these services, even though there is no formal accounting system like this. So we've put forth this approach that we call natural capitalism, which is based on three principles. First of all, use all resources dramatically more productively. Why? Because it saves you money. It's simply good housekeeping. Mm -hmm. So when Walmart, in one of its lines of product, eliminated packaging, the waste mm -hmm. from packaging, they saved $2.4 million in one year. And they said they're going to do more of that based on the Clinton initiatives this year that they signed up to. Yes, I was, I was at the Clinton Global Initiative uh -huh. when Lee Scott made his speech. And indeed, I was standing with Clinton and Sir Richard Branson. When Branson announced that he was going to put the entire profits of the Virgin Group for the next 10 years into carbon-neutral fuels, the media came running up and said, why is he doing this? And Sir Richard said, look, I run an airline. In a carbon-constrained world, I need fuel. And I said, he's going to make a boatload of money. Mm -hmm. This is not environmentalism imposed on business. Mm -hmm. This is not philanthropy. This is simply good business. Now, the thing that using resources more efficiently does, most of all, other than save money, is buy time. It solves many of the environmental constraints that are facing us at a profit. But it will not, in and of itself, give us a sustainable world that we can pass on to the next generation and ten generations on and the future of the world. Mm -hmm. So the second principle of natural capitalism is that we reinvent how we make every product and how we conduct every process in society. Again, because this is good business. Now this will take time. This isn't something we're going to snap our fingers and have done by tomorrow. But we can begin the process, and many of the brightest companies are doing this right now. This is an approach called biomimicry, asking how does nature do business? Mm -hmm. Nature makes a wide array of products and services, very differently than we do. We use energy wastefully. Nature runs on sunlight. Nature doesn't use big flows of energy, with the occasional exception of a volcano or a hurricane. Nature makes essentially everything near next to something that's alive. Most of our industrial processes are not safe to slap your body up next to. Nature uses the waste from one process as the input for another process. Nature shops locally. There are a whole set of principles of biomimicry, which, again, smart businesses are applying because it helps them drive their innovation. For example, spiders sit at room temperature, working off of sunlight, eating flies and crickets, and they spin a fabric stronger than steel, tougher than Kevlar. Best we know how to make Kevlar is boiling vats of sulfuric acid and high-pressure extruders. How do these little guys do that?
Well, companies are starting to ask this. How could we replicate the spinnerets of a spider and the chemical processes that go on inside a spider to produce a fabric as strong as Kevlar with nothing toxic and no high temperatures? Well, and part of, part of what you're pointing out, too, even in the case of the spider, is you have to look at the entire way the spider <laughs> operates. It's not just, let's see if we can synthesize the materials. Correct. You have Correct. to think of it as a whole system. How does the spider exist within its larger ecosystem, the, the web of life and the, the web of the spider? Mm -hmm. An abalone sits off the coast here in California and produces an inner lining better than our best ceramics that we make in very high temperature kilns. The abalone's in seawater. The guys at Sandia Lab said, wait a minute, we've got to be at least as smart as an abalone. How's it doing it? They figured out that the abalone excretes a protein that creates an electrically charged framework onto which seawater deposits out at the molecular level, this very beautiful inner shell. Mm -hmm. Nature is also beautiful. So they took an electrically charged silicon substrate and dipped it in alternating baths of calcium carbonate and a polymer, and the stuff self-assembled at the molecular level just the way it does for the abalone. Hmm. They're making glass that you can't break, eyeglasses you can't scratch, even a coating for the nose cone of the space shuttle. I mean, this is industry mm -hmm. that is clean by design, mm -hmm. that has no waste, because it operates on the principles of nature. There are a number of the world's leading companies that are using biomimicry. Companies like AT&T and Hughes Aircraft and 3M and Nike and Herman Miller and Interface. Interestingly, some of the Japanese companies are becoming particularly interested in this approach of biomimicry. Kyocera, for instance, has a corporate motto of respect the divine and love people. They conduct business in a way that is harmonious with the mind of the universe, the life-giving force of the universe. And they are looking particularly at examples from nature to inform their product design. Mm -hmm. There are companies that hire biologists to be a part of a design team. And when they start into figuring out how to make a particular product or run a process, they go outside. And almost like asking for divine guidance, they sit outside and they say, how would nature solve this problem? Mm -hmm. And they find that it unleashes the creativity of the design process. They come up with answers that work better, cost less, eliminate most of the problems of the prior way that they were doing business that they never would have thought of in a conventional design process. So this speaks to, I guess, a source of inspiration as well as a sustainable source of inspiration, if you like, and that once you really look at the biomimicry, you indeed can have something that maybe can last for the long term. But there's also the whole issue of getting past the inertia of, I've done it this way, I have this way of proceeding, and, and literally changing the paradigm. We as a species may be good at a lot of things, but one that we're probably we shouldn't be praised for is our stubbornness you know we're actually very good at just sticking with the old same way of doing things what do you think it's going to take to actually get us to really change I think we are facing we are in the midst of a time of profound change that will force us to change essentially everything about the way that we do business and much of the way we live our life Margaret Mead said the only person who likes change is a wet baby <laughs> Humans resist change rather actively. 
At the same time, we embrace it. We are always looking for the next new thing. The compact discs sold not because they used less material, but because they delivered a superior service over final records. Absolutely. And as a species, we seek nifty new things. So to the extent that business can take on the solving of some of these massive drivers of change, the sorts of problems that are confronting us, climate change and high and rising energy prices and the, the vulnerability of all of our infrastructure to the point that we've now been scared out of our wits by this war on terrorism, the loss of ecosystems, etc. By bringing forth superior products made in different ways that work better, cost less, and meet basic human needs using world best practice in sustainability, we can largely solve this problem at a profit. The interesting challenge is going to be, can we, as a business community in particular, overcome what I think is the primary driver of change now, which I call the sustainability imperative. Why is Walmart going green? Is it a moral conversion? Is it because the environmentalists stood outside their door with picket signs? I think it's because Walmart's in a fight for its life. It's fighting to survive. In the time that its current CEO has been in office, it's lost 30% of its share value. It's on track in 06 to have its worst year ever. It, it's facing very fundamental business problems. From an outsider's perspective, I mean, yes, you see the stock market side of it, but I don't think there are a lot of us will be looking at Walmart and, and being concerned about its long-term fiscal health. Well, Walmart is the largest company on the planet. Yep. If it were uh, a country, it would be 20th largest in the world. If it were a city, it would be fifth biggest in the U.S., over a million employees in the United States. And yet it was run out of Germany because of the social critics. It is facing severe supply chain issues owing to challenges like climate change. Increased violence in storms and weather is threatening its ability to bring stuff from halfway around the planet. In fact, it has a full-time meteorologist on staff just to figure out how to deal with these sorts of issues. It also is facing the fact that in an Internet-empowered world, if your customers don't like you, they can go away. Now, it built its business model in the 90s in a time of relatively cheap energy on being the lowest cost model and squeezing its suppliers and squeezing its workforce. It's now experimenting with this question of what would a truly sustainable Walmart be? And it's nice if you plant trees in the parking lot and put solar panels on the roof and have a little more insulation in your building and sell compact fluorescent light bulbs, but that's not getting at the fundamental business model of going around the planet in a rapacious fashion and bringing stuff to Des Moines, Iowa so that consumers can get it a little bit cheaper. Mm -hmm. And yet, again, it's, it's losing market share. It grew like crazy in the 90s. In the aughts, it's not doing so well. And I think it's facing some of these fundamental drivers of change that, that have brought its senior management very wisely to begin looking at fundamental structural change. So, for example, they hired in a man named Adam Wareback, who had been the president of the Sierra Club, to help teach the Walmart associates 
what is sustainability? They had not expected the overwhelming increase in morale that they got when the associates began to realize that the company was serious about the same set of values that they held in their hearts that they wanted for their families, for their communities. So they are getting increases in worker productivity, in worker enthusiasm, in worker participation in problem solving. And this has been uniform across companies that implement a sustainability program. It incredibly motivates their workforce and it brings them into a partnership of problem solving in a way that before the workforce viewed the company in a somewhat antagonistic fashion. Yeah, you know, we depend on the paycheck, but they're really just out to screw us. If you can align your workforce behind your corporate mission, that's where you get excellent performance. And excellent performance is what gives you outstanding bottom line performance. So we talk now about not a triple bottom line, but an integrated bottom line. And a business is going to manage to the bottom line, finance, profit, the, the metrics, money. Absolutely. And anybody who says otherwise just it doesn't have the day-to-day -day responsibility of meeting a payroll, of dealing with stock analysts, with delivering on shareholder value. Mm -hmm. But what is shareholder value? Is it just your profit? Shareholder value is made up of a basket of attributes, everything from franchise to operate. When Walmart got run out of Germany, that cost them. That went to the bottom line. When the insurance companies say, we're not going to insure you if you live in a hurricane-prone area, mm -hmm. that's a cost. When California sued the automakers because of their carbon emissions, that's mm -hmm. an unbooked liability. When you have waste that is not being squeezed out of your way of doing business, that's a cost. You pay to get that resource brought to your door, and then you pay to have it taken away. Eliminating it or redesigning the product or the process such that that resource is now an asset to you goes right to your bottom line. Similarly, in good green buildings, we find that Green features like daylighting and better air handling. Into a school, you're going to get higher test scores. Walmart conducted a, an inadvertent controlled experiment. They half built a green building. They were going to build a green building, and halfway through, they lost interest. So they had a half green, half not. Every cash register in Walmart's hardwired to Bentonville. They know exactly what these things are selling. And they had 40% higher retail sales on the green side. And all the employees wanted to work there. That got their attention. So you can get lower health care costs, higher worker productivity, higher performance, higher sales. Marketing, brand differentiation. Your brand in most companies today is worth multiples of your hard asset base. So brand differentiation and brand image and brand protection, protection of brand equity, is incredibly important to share value, to, to shareholder value. The ability to drive innovation. When ST Microelectronics announced that it was going to reduce its emissions of greenhouse gases to the point where it was carbon neutral by 2010 with a 40-fold increase in production, 
They had no idea how they were going to do this. But they made this, they, as Jim Collins said, they set a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal, and set about trying to deliver on it. It drove their corporate innovation, taking them from the number 12 chip maker in the world to the number 6. And they reckon by the time they're carbon neutral, they will have saved about a billion dollars. DuPont announced 65% reduction in their greenhouse gases over their 1990 levels by 2010. Delivering on it has already saved them over $3 billion. British Petroleum rebranded itself as Beyond Petroleum. And people say, that's greenwashing. Well, no, it's not. No, they I've, are making I've, I've met some of the senior executives of British Petroleum. They're very serious about it. They're deadly serious about it. They're recognizing that in a world of peak oil, of declining oil reserves, of a business where when a refinery blows up, you've got incredible liability. When a pipe corrodes on the uh, north slope of Alaska and you spill oil all over the place, you have incredible liability. This is actually not the business they want to be in in the future. So they are transitioning over time from being an oil company to being an energy company beyond petroleum. Mm -hmm. They're very serious about that rebranding. And they, as they say in their ads, it's a start. Sure, they cannot snap their fingers and be something else tomorrow. But as DuPont, 100 years ago, was making explosives and is now making Teflon, these companies recognize that 100 years from now, if they still wish to be in business as a company, i.e. enduring shareholder value, they will be doing something different. So what is it? And these companies are very serious about bringing on new product line, new business models, ways of cutting their cost, enhancing their profitability today that will enable them to make this transition into this misty future. We, none of us know what a sustainable world is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we know what an unsustainable one is. Look around you. Right. We don't know what a sustainable world is. And so all of these companies are part of this incredibly exciting experiment in the transition of commerce, of business, of capitalism to something that can long endure on the planet, a vision all living things can share, as Kate Wolf said. So BP was quite surprised when their initiative has saved them about a million and a half dollars just by cutting carbon emissions in their own operations hmm. because it increased their efficiency and cut their costs. They now say it also makes them the kind of company the best talent wants to come work for. That's very true. Herman Miller says the same thing. We are in a competition for the best talent. If we are going to survive as a company, we need good people. How do we get and keep the best people? We set forth a mission, a vision, a set of values that people want to be a part of. Well, you can also attract the best suppliers, the best business partners, even your competitors treat you differently. You the know, when you're ability this way. to manage your value chain mm -hmm. is a huge part of what constitutes shareholder value. Nike said, we're going to be a sustainable company. And the critics said, yeah, you have all these sweatshops in Asia that make your product. Life magazine ran a cover story about one young Tariq out of Pakistan stitching soccer balls for 60 cents a day. And Nike said, wait, that's not us. These are other companies that we buy from. The customers said, no, you are your brand. 
and you will take responsibility for your supply chain or we're not going to do business with you and slapped a consumer boycott on them. Now, Nike did the right thing. They cowboyed up and they said, okay, we will make our supply chain transparent. April of 05, they said, you know, this was the best business decision we've made in a long time. It made it easier to manage the supply chain. Mm-hmm. Walmart has 61,000 suppliers. Right. And they are starting to say to them, if you want shelf space in a Walmart, you will go green. Well, and their potential for influencing, too, on a global scale is tremendous. I mean, th- just think alone about, I guess if I think about the ecosystem issues, uh, China, of course, is one of their major suppliers, mm-hmm. or the Chinese corporation. And China, unfortunately, has a little bit of a problem with ecological damage and other things because they're going through what we went through maybe 100 years ago or 150 years ago and just slowly trying to figure it out. Walmart, partnering with them, could actually do a tremendous good, not just for Walmart, but literally for the whole world by their partnerships. Indeed. The Chinese are very serious about being part of this transition. They see firsthand the, all the problems of the first industrial revolution being played out again to the point where they have declining life expectancy because of the pollution and to the point where the Olympics said, we're not going to come to Beijing unless you have clean air. So the Chinese declared for the 50th anniversary of the Communist Party a blue sky day for Beijing. Now, they did it with draconian measures. They shut down every (laughs) combustion source in anywhere around, and the sky turned blue. My goodness. And they said, whoa. The Chinese now have a Department of Sustainability at the University of Beijing. The book Natural Capitalism came out in Chinese and sold out in two days. The foreword was written by the number two party ideologist who said, this may be the next ideology of China. We know that communism is a bankrupt ideology, but we are not going to roll over and say, oh, the West was right, we were wrong. We need a new way of doing business, and perhaps it's natural capitalism. I think we will see innovation coming out of China, things like hydrogen cars, and new ways of using biomimicry to produce exciting new products and processes, and dramatic resource productivity, energy efficiency, renewable energy, that the Chinese can do very quickly because they are watching what's going on in the rest of the world, and they're looking for the best technologies. That's a tremendous vision. I I was going to just say, as we're getting near the end of the interview time here. I'm sure that a lot of the listeners are probably very curious about how to learn more. If they wanted to learn more about this, where should they go? There are a number of ways to learn more about these topics. One of the most obvious is to get and buy the book Natural Capitalism. You can also go to my website, www.natcapsolutions.org. The entire book is posted there for free, along with most of my papers, a number of other books, Things like a climate protection manual for cities that we are just finishing, and as soon as we finish this, we'll turn around and write one for small businesses. If you're serious about reducing your emissions of greenhouse gases, how do you actually do it? So we laid out a Monday morning strategy for cities, and we'll do the same thing for businesses. You can also take whole degrees in this now. I teach here at Presidio School of Management. This is an MBA program, full-on MBA, accredited MBA, in which sustainability is woven throughout every aspect of the curriculum. 
And our graduates are getting jobs in some of these companies that are implementing the principles of natural capitalism that are managing their businesses to be sustainable for the value of their shareholders and indeed for the planet. That's a great seeding for the future, too. <laughs> well, Hunter, I really appreciate your time, and I know that you could tell us a great deal more. I'd encourage everybody <laughs> who's listening, please go buy the book or read the book and investigate further and even more important, start working on your own transformation of your own business. And Hunter, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. As I reflect on the conversation you just heard, one of the interesting paradoxes of our time is how phrases such as socially responsible business, sustainable businesses, and Ms. Lovin's own natural capitalism function as phrases in the English language. They catch our attention because we see business as something that isn't always either socially responsible or sustainable. And many, in fact, would consider that most businesses would see social responsibility as a thing to be thinking about, but not as the top priority. And natural capitalism strikes a chord because, by their very essence, the concepts nature and capitalism seem drawn from very different forges. The latter of our human realm, and with seemingly human limitations, and the former of a broader, almost animistic power. If we are to continue to thrive as a species, however, we in business must take action and show that business must embrace social responsibility, sustainability, and nature, not as outside our creations, but forever after intertwined and truly interdependent with the nature we are all part of. Why? Because our businesses are being drained and or polluted through our lack of vision, because the life of our species depends on shifting, and because, very bluntly, it's just good business to do it. As with many such changes in focus and strategy, it won't be easy, but we need to shift from thinking of being socially responsible as a tax on our efforts, and instead as an integral force that can help our business ecosystems reach yet another level of growth for the foreseeable future. Together, we can do it. And together is, in fact, the only way we are going to be in the future, period. That's my reflection for this week, and thanks for listening. We thank you for joining us for this episode of Stranova's podcast series. If you'd like to learn more about Stranova's business services and the topics discussed in this week's episode, please visit us at www.stranova.com, write us at ideas at stranova.com, or visit our blog at blog.stranova.com. Our program materials are covered by a Creative Commons license, the Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivatives 2.5 license by Brad Redderson. And this is Brad Redderson inviting you to join us soon for a future audio program exploring where strategy and innovation intersect.